1: Well, this conversation is likely to mess with your assumptions, so stop listening now if you want peace of mind, but lower marketing-led growth, particularly in B2B remits, but really for all marketers. Today, we have Jenny Romanek, research professor at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and author of the second edition of the seminal work, How Brands Grow. Jenny is joined by John Lombardo, head of research at the B2B Institute in New York, And Prue Cox, Director of Enterprise for Southeast Asia, Korea, and ANZ for LinkedIn. John and Jenny have been involved in some quite significant global research on what makes B2B brands grow, off the back of the industry shaping work in international consumer marketing by Jenny and her colleagues at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. In a B2B context, you've probably noticed Salesforce doing what seems like some crazy stuff for a B2B tech firm. It's sponsoring the Australian Tennis Open and Sydney's Mardi Gras, among all kinds of mainstream marketing programs that B2B companies don't typically do. Now, it's here in Australia, they're doing some crazy stuff, and in the US, and We might hear a bit of that in, from John Lobato in a second. And there's a reason Salesforce is addressing a real brand awareness problem, but not as you may know it. We're going to unpack that with our guests and a bunch of other conventions in B2B marketing that might make a few squirm like marketing and sales funnels. Yes, there's been a few attempts to call the end on how we conventionally define how people end up buying a product, starting with awareness, moving to consideration, and ultimately through to purchase. But we're about to hear some new thinking on that and the role of mental availability in B2B and beyond. So enough from me. Uh, welcome to you all. I'm really looking forward to this one. It, it'll be uh, super fascinating to see what's going on globally. To John Lobato first, the, the B2B Institute has done some really interesting work with, the, uh, with Ehrenberg Bass on how brands grow in B2B, John, and it's a little challenging to convention really. So I, I guess just to set this up, why the research and what are some of the standout findings that, um, that you've uncovered uh, in, your, in your travels, John? And welcome from far, far away.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me, Paul. Great to be here. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason for the research is that, you know, we spent a couple of years talking to our clients about all the wonderful research that is coming out of places like the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, and they always wanted to know, yeah, but this is for B2C, you know, what do you have for B2B? And we realized we needed to go find B2B specific data to convince B2B marketers of the value of marketing. Because, you know, in a B2B firm, it's generally sales led or it's product or engineering led, but it's very rarely marketing led. So there's not the same appreciation and respect and investment in in marketing. So, you know, we had to find B2B data and obviously Ehrenberg Bass, you know, for our money is the place to go. And, you know, incredibly, we tracked down Jenny, who I learned through our many uh, experiences together, actually did her PhD in B2B, which I only learned, I feel like, in the last year or two, despite the fact we've been working together for a couple of years. But, you know, we've been trying to track down B2B-specific data. We've done a lot of that. Some of the stuff that is covered in this specific research, which we have aptly called how B2B brands grow, uh, you know, there's a bit on just introducing the concepts of mental and physical availability. You know, I love the the short piece that that Byron wrote for us because it it just makes clear that intangible assets are more and more value, more and more valuable to, to any firm and drive a lot of the financial value creation. And then it expresses how to create those intangible assets, you know, through marketing and. Uh, it's like I, I just love the financial framing of mental and physical availability. I love how rigorous it is, how quantitative it is. And then when we get specifically into some of the research, you know, not just talking about the broad mental and physical availability ideas, we've got, you know, a, an Ehrenberg-Bass special, which is the double jeopardy law, which is, I think, one of the most controversial, if not most controversial ideas in marketing where we talk about what's more, you know, important to growth. Is it customer loyalty or is it customer acquisition? All of our our companies in b2b you know and our biggest companies are generally tech companies they all think a retention is much more important uh, loyalty is much more important that is kind of in some ways the the classic myth there so when you bring the idea that actually acquisition is more important than than retention that's always a very interesting conversation you know another i would say myth that we we come across a lot in b2b is you know i don't compete with those folks i only compete with these two or three companies and in fact we talk about duplicate purchase in our research where you know, the research shows that you compete with whether you like it or not the biggest firm in your market. And that is a very confronting idea for most of our customers, but helps them to have a more realistic understanding of the marketplace and how to try to compete. Then we've got a thing on brand rejection, which is also very entertaining because brands always feel that their brands are so important that everybody's going to pay attention to them. And if they put one foot wrong the buyer is going to essentially cancel them or the buyer is not going to buy from them. So they assume that everybody's thinking about their brands all the time. In fact, the opposite is true. Nobody's ever thinking about their brands. And so nobody's out there saying, you did something that made me so upset, I'm never going to buy from you. This research that Jenny put together, is called B2B brand rejection. It's fantastic as well. And then the final bit we talk about is the 95-5 rule, which actually was part of a conversation I had down at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in Adelaide. Uh, and John Dawes, Professor John Dawes, just kind of offhandedly said, you know, there's this idea that most people are not in market in any given time, you know, maybe five to 10% are in market in a given time, you know, and the remaining folks, they're actually not in the market at that time, they're out market. And so it means you need to treat them differently. And it has lots of implications for how marketing actually works. It works more by reaching people and building memories or mental availability than it does by you know, making an immediate sale. So that's, I think, an incredible piece of research that I always try to say, you know, in many ways, the Benetton field research on the sixty forty 40 rules become very famous in advertising circles. But I would say, you know, for my money and for our research, the 95-5 rule is probably a, a better and more realistic and more customer-centric way to actually to think about things. So a bit long-winded there, but I think I just covered everything.
1: All of this is encapsulated, really, um, I think, in a, in a, in a- uh, a case study around Salesforce. Um, well, a lot of it is, sorry. And, and you, you've you sort of delved into this quite a bit. It's very interesting, um, which is sort of starts from the from the premise that, believe it or not, Salesforce has an awareness problem, but not as we know it. Um, maybe start from some Salesforce's uh, sort of case, uh, John, and we work our way through some of those themes that you talked about.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you think about all of this research, I would say they're all really powerful mental models. You know, so mental and physical availability as the way that brands compete in the marketplace; those are powerful mental models. Double Jeopardy says, you know, acquisition bigger priority than than loyalty. Duplicate purchases—you don't compete with small brands; you compete with big brands. Brand rejection is nobody thinks about you. It's not that everybody thinks about you. And ninety-five-five rule—the in-market, out-market construct—I think is a very powerful mental model, better than the funnel. The Salesforce example is another important mental model, which is. Most of our customers are thinking about awareness, and in fact, we're trying to encourage them to think more about availability. And obviously, that's mental availability. You know, and most people don't realize that they should even think about mental availability because they don't know about mental availability. So the Salesforce example says, you know, big brands, they always have high awareness. But I would say that awareness is kind of the wrong way to think about it. I'm sure Jenny will get into this in more detail, but... It's essentially just saying like, you know, what do you think about my brand? So it's very brand centric. I would say much more customer centric view is Jenny's concept of category entry points. And it's ultimately about what can you do? Like what jobs can you help the buyer do? You know, like what do they need? What do the buyer need? So the category entry point view is a very customer centric view, whereas the awareness model is a very you know, kind of uh, brand centric view. And so, you know, we're just trying to get people to always be more market oriented, to be more customer centric. And, And Salesforce is asking these questions like, have you heard of my brand? Well, that's actually not how people buy the category. They don't think I need a CRM. What they think is I need to talk to my customers, or I need to segment my customers by the most valuable or the newest or the biggest or in this region. So the ways that people think about buying brands, it's more about the situation rather than it is about the brand or the category. So that's, you know, how Salesforce could be known by everybody, right? They have high awareness, but a very low availability. They're not actually linked to very many of the most important buying situations or buying needs. And when you actually dig into their awareness data and look at it from an availability perspective, you'll find that, you know, on like revenue management or customer management, you know, they're not at, everybody knows it. It's in fact, very few people think of them for reaching out to the biggest customers or organizing an event through it. So. It's just a different way, a more customer-focused way of thinking about the things you can do for a buyer, and it's a pretty big flip from how companies do it today.
1: Well, it's very different, and Salesforce has clocked this right. They they, they get this, and they're working on it.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at a lot of their their um, latest advertising you know they're linking themselves to specific categories they're linking themselves to specific buying situations i mean they do other things extremely well too like the astro character is an exceptional distinctive asset so there's a lots of things that they do well but i would say that you can look at their advertising and understand that they are building general awareness you know that is always a job to d- be done but they're doing a very good job getting down to Maybe linking it to specific buying situations or specific categories where they likely have low penetration. So it's getting less about broad awareness and more about strategic availability or building of strategic mental availability. I would say.
1: Got it. Let's let's just quickly go to the the marketing funnel which you've touched on and why it needs why it needs a work over and it's sort of linked to this ninety five five rule that um, that uh, you talk about. And in, in that 95 to 5 rule, it's almost like if you in – the, in, the, in, a, in, a, in a visualization, an infographic uh, context, the, the funnel, which is, is, is vertical, you flip it to almost a horizontal um, sort of scenario. What, talk us through that.
2: The normal construct or the popular construct is the, is the sales funnel or the marketing funnel, top of funnel, bottom of funnel. Yeah. That I think actually is – it's not even a marketing funnel. It started as a sales funnel. And it's an idea where in a conversation, I could move you from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel through persuasion, you know, but, um, but I guess the first thing I would say that's wrong with it again, is it's not really all that customer centric. I don't think anybody would ever say I'm at the top of the funnel or I'm at the bottom of the funnel. A better way to think about it is if you flip the funnel on its side, you'd say it's not top of funnel or bottom of funnel. People are either in market for a product or service, or they don't need the product or service. So they're out market. And you know, and the ninety-five-five rule says specifically or descriptively that five percent of folks, it's a heuristic, so don't take this too precisely, but on average, like five percent of people are are in market for a product or service, and so they might be considered to be at the bottom of the funnel. Whereas only, you know, ninety-five percent, the vast majority of people there they're out market and they're not ready to buy your product or service for until some future period could be six, six months or six years. But you know, that that's kind of again, I I talk a lot about these mental models, but this, in my view, is a much more customer-centric view. You know, Your customers either need your product or service, and so they're in-market, or they don't, and so they're out-market. And how you run advertising to them will vary depending on whether they're in-market or out-market. You know, our B2B companies obsess over lead generation. They act like everybody's in-market at all times. And so they run these ads that say, buy now or register now. But you know, if you're not in-market for that product or service, you're just going to ignore that ad. You know, whereas if you actually were able to look at, okay, these folks are in market, so I will run a targeted lead gen ad to them with a rational offer. Well, then the opposite would actually be true for the 95%. They're not in market. So I'm not going to try to convert them or persuade them. I'm just going to make them aware of my product, aware of the category that we're in, aware of the services we offer, you know, and it's going to be done in some more creative, engaging way, kind of like what Salesforce does with Astro or, you know, what. The compare the market does with Meerkat, you know, or in America what Geico does with Gecko. It's just saying, hey, we we exist. We sell car insurance. You know, at some point in the future, when you are thinking about buying car insurance, when you have that need, then ultimately, you know, you should think of us and shortlist us and potentially buy from us. So,
1: how is that going down with B two B marketers, John? When you put that to them, because it is challenging to what most will will do, particularly those that are sales and lead generated, uh, lead gen um, focused. What's the response you get?
2: most people like it I, I think it does resonate with people to say you know you are thinking about this from your perspective you're being very brand centric you know with your top of funnel and your bottom of funnel you'd be better off being more customer centric and trying to figure out who's in market who's out of market i think they like that because it's more customer centric there's an additional benefit i believe for b2b marketers though the 95 five rule in some ways also represents how companies are valued so you know, you get your current cash flows from the 5% that are in market and are going to buy today. And then the other job is to prime buyers who represent future cash flows. These are people who won't buy until some future date. Future cash flows are very important because most tech firms, especially, but most firms in general, the majority of their stock price is based on future cash flows. It's not based on current cash flows. So the idea of the 95-5 rule is is powerful in two two ways. One is it's a better focus on the customer, right? which is kind of your external customer, but it's also a better way to talk to your internal customer, which often is finance. You you need to go into the CFO and say, we are doing this because we think it's going to make us come to mind in more buying situations. We'll generate more of those sales. And so we're going to have a, a durable stream of future cash flow. So it's about producing cash, mitigating risk. Marketers in general need to just be much more quantitative, much more financial about how they talk about, especially brand advertising. Like This is fundamentally one of the big, I think, issues we have in our industry is that only the lead gen marketers who can tie every click to a dollar have been getting budgets. And so everything's getting more and more short term. The ninety-five-five rule gives you a way to talk about the buyer kind of being in market or out market, and then linking that kind of marketing activity to cash flows, which is a financial activity. And then when you can talk to the CFO, you can argue for bigger budgets to do things like brand advertising and brand management. So it's something we push a lot. It's just the idea that there's too much emphasis on the alignment of sales and marketing, and there's not enough emphasis on the alignment of marketing and finance.
1: Yeah, great points. Um, And so just quickly before we go to Jenny, brand rejection, it sort of lands on all sides of marketing, isn't it? Or companies, really. Everyone thinks that um, everyone loves their brand is thinking about it 24 uh, seven. That ain't the case.
2: Yes, that is so true. Yeah. I mean, this is something else, you know, we've really learned from, from Jenny and co, but the problem is never that people are thinking of your brand too much. That's never the problem you have. The problem you have is always that you are insignificant to your buyers. They don't think about you at all. Right. So the idea that you're going to, that you're running some ad and it's going to be so incredibly offensive to people that they're never going to buy your brand again. That it's possible that that can happen. It's just extraordinarily rare. And today, I think especially communications departments at firms treat it like it's very common. And so we're just trying to give people a sense: for, is this rare or is this common? Okay, it's exceedingly rare. So you shouldn't really worry about the downside. The job is always to worry about the upside. And you see that in the data. You see that even for firms like Barclays, who are enormous banks in the UK market, they have more people who literally don't know they exist than would actively reject them or actively not buy from them. You know, and so on the big big firms even suffer from like too little availability uh, and small firms especially suffer from too little availability i mean small firms are small firms because nobody knows they exist and nobody buys from them so brand rejection i think is just fun because a lot of what we're saying is kind of like worry about the upside try to get more reach try to get better messaging try to do better branding that will build mental availabilities so like kind of like you know lift this think about the upside but then there's also like let's just actually consider the downside And there is no downside so again like worry about the upside the job is always to build mental availability
1: it's like a parallel to parental rejection isn't it john i've got a 20 year old son at university and dad does not exist let me tell you it's it's i'm irrelevant it's a sort of similar scenario isn't it
2: yeah that's good I, I think that will resonate with the people that are listening to this and maybe give them a more realistic view of their how their child is is the brand the primary brand in their life that's rejecting
1: and this. if you don't have a kid in uni yet wait for it it's coming you won't exist. Now, Jenny, um, you're responsible for a lot of the stuff that John's been talking about, some interesting stuff, and and you're behind a lot of this. And I didn't know either you did your degree or your studies in in B2B, so that makes it even more relevant. Let's just start, though, with um, the work that you've been doing with the B2B Institute uh, on this. There's a couple of key points before we drill down into some of the, the, the areas your take on what John's been talking about where you, where you think um, B2B marketers are, are restricted, and it's mostly uh, about how they think. Um, what do you mean by that? There's a, there's, a, there's a mindset here you talk about. Welcome, by the way.
3: Hi, Paul. Um, yeah, uh, I think sometimes um, B2B marketers can be their own worst enemies by setting up their own barriers to success um, and assuming that there are differences that might not exist. Um, now, yeah, you know, we um, at the Arabic Bass Institute are very much of the science mentality that um, you know, once you've got enough evidence, something exists in a lot of different contexts. You only assume it doesn't exist if you have evidence to show that. So something like double jeopardy, we just go, well, yeah, of course it probably exists even in places we haven't tested yet because it exists in a lot of the places we have Um, and you know B2B is one of the areas that um, I did work in very early and we're not known for our work in services but we have done quite a bit and um, particularly in B2B services Um, but um, yeah it's about understanding that when you have something that's really well defined and really well established It's valuable to hold on to it rather than to try to be contrary to it. And with marketing laws, we have a lot of things that we can learn from and build on rather than assume that those foundations aren't there.
1: Give us an example of that, Gemini. Well, there's two things actually, Jenny. For those that are not across double jeopardy in the context we're talking about, very quickly, what do you mean by that? And then give us an example of sort of these assumptions that you talk about.
3: Yeah, so, so double jeopardy is the law that small brands are basically penalised twice. So that's the double jeopardy. Um, they have many fewer users and those users are slightly less loyal. So it doesn't matter how you measure loyalty. You can measure it by purchase frequency, defection rates, um, uh, number of products hold, all of these measures of repeated behavior um, show that this, this same fundamental pattern happens. And so what it means if you're a small brand is you can calibrate your metrics to what you should get for a brand of your size. So instead of assuming you should get the loyalty of a big brand, understand that size calibrates your expectations and allows you to realistically assess, is your loyalty normal? And so that helps us inform our decision-making based on our metrics, but it also informs the strategic path to growth, which is what John was talking about. If you look at a classic double jeopardy pattern, what you see is lots of differences in the number of customers, very little difference in how those customers buy. And so that immediately tells you the path to growth. Um, We've tracked this over time, so we know this is supported when you look over time, but that's really hard to do. You have to have longitudinal data for that. But even looking at data at a point in time, which most companies can do, you can see this clear strategic path of if you grow, what you will look like. And then that means the big question is how do we grow, which is where we go to the mental and physical availability side of it.
1: In terms of the assuming differences with no evidence is, is that earlier point you made, practically in a B2B context, what, what does that look like? What does that mean in a marketing context, B2B marketing context?
3: Well, it speaks to some of the things John was talking about in terms of assuming that loyalty is the key, retention is the key path to growth. Things like um, word of mouth and the power of it um, is often very much claimed, but we've done a lot of work in the word of mouth area and there are some very clear parameters around how influential word of mouth can be. Um, But another factor is that, I mean, it all comes down to the point that B2B marketers have the same brain as everybody else. They don't have a special neuroscience class where you learn about the special brain of a B2B marketer.
1: Oh, they're actually humans, you're saying, Jenny?
3: Absolutely, yes. Humans that are, have these wonderful imperfect brains that we have that never tells us everything, routinely forgets things that are important, and guides us to be more efficient than effective in our thinking. You know, the brain no. always will, if it has a choice between efe- effectiveness and efficiency, it'll take the lazy route out, is a general rule of thumb to take. Now, even no. when someone is paid to do a job, there's still fallibilities in their brains and ways that their brains work to make it easier for them to make the decisions they have to. And we can, if we understand those, we can work with those to use it to our advantage.
1: If you're in financial services or you're in telecommunications uh, or in software and IT in a B2B context, where do those issues surface in a a practical example? What What do they do that they shouldn't be doing or what are they not doing that they should be doing?
3: A lot of advertising that's geared to persuasion rather than building mental availability. So persuasion is about assuming you're in the room and you're arguing your point, whereas mental availability is about getting into the room. And so that's the big challenge that most organisations fail is to get into the room, um, but they're spending all their money on arguing as if they're already there.
1: Right. And so just, just at, a, at, a, at a top level, the work that you've done in, uh, and how brands grow in a B2C context, John talked about it earlier that the the B2B argument is, well, that's consumer, we're in B2B, there's a difference here and is it really relevant? What your work is finding is that these principles hold across both. That's sort of the macro take on this. Is that right, Jenny? With with nuance and is that they hold and then what is the nuance?
3: Yeah, they hold, but there are um, differences that come out, particularly when you're dealing with, for example, how people are thinking about brands in terms of, you know, there might be other people that are a, a range of stakeholders that people are holding in their brains, their opinions. So, we see a bit of this in B2C, but it's less um, pronounced. So, for example, if you're a parent and you're buying for a kid, um, you do take into account what your kid's going to react, their kid's reaction before you buy something. Right. Right? Yep. If you're a, um, in IT procurement and you're about to buy a cloud supplier, you're going to take into account what your board is going to think about the choices you right. make when you're looking thinking of the options that you're going to put on that short list to you know get a tender from so so all of those sorts of things come in but you might not just have the board in mind you might also have the people who are going to be using it in mind what's their it literacy how much challenge is that going to be if you know what support are you going to need you might also have your peers in mind you're thinking, oh wow, I wouldn't mind getting promoted next year, I wonder what they're doing and what they will think about um, the choices I make. So the people that you might think about as a B2B decision maker is a little bit more of a complex landscape. But when it comes to the fundamentals of the buying behaviour that underpins it, there are vastly more similarities in marketing laws than there are differences. So much so that it's actually really challenging to think of any specific differences that would be worthwhile changing your strategy for.
1: Now, before we get to Prue, he's, he's going to talk through some interesting work and companies that are, are sort of doing this probably more aligned to the principles that, that you're talking about. I just want to, uh, John also touched on it. I want, to, I want to get your thoughts on this. A lot of B2B is very linked to lead generation and the sales team. And uh, it does tend to produce a much shorter term focus on everything. This is fundamentally sort of uh, wayward, do you think? Or it needs it needs some more development? What is your thoughts on that?
3: I think that um, for a long time, marketing and sales have been seen at odds with each other. And my hope is that as B2B marketers and hopefully the sales team learn more about mental and physical availability, there'll be a greater understanding that these two things actually work together um, and how marketing and sales work together for the benefit of the whole company because that is the thing that mental and physical availability, mental model does. It actually brings marketing and sales together. So as we start to learn more and explain more and share more of these findings. I'm hoping that that gap will get bridged and it'll be less of a combative relationship for budget and more of a collaborative relationship to better use the budget.
1: John, the the tension there between sales and marketing, what are you seeing? How is that? I mean, it's real. Uh, What's the way forward, way through this?
2: I mean, I, I'm very obviously excited about what Jenny just described, but I'm a little bit less optimistic than Jenny is. Seeing this on the day to day, I'm a bit more pessimistic. I think in the end, part of the problem is that sales wants to take credit for the sale, and marketing wants to take credit for the sale. And whenever people are fighting over, like we often say that people fight because they're different, but often people fight more because they're fighting over the same thing. Right, uh, and so you know i think what jenny's describing is possibly a way that we can share credit for the same thing which would be a massive leap forward but you know but i'm not as sanguine about the alignment of sales and marketing as i am about again marketing first going to finance partnering with finance and i think if we can partner with finance successfully, then we will be able to partner with sales.
1: So why is that? Is it because the the agenda or the remit for sales is so different to what marketing is trying to do in a longer view? Is that what the crux of this is? Well,
2: you know, I think finance is just trying to take an accounting of actually what's creating value in the firm. They don't really care where the value comes from. They just want to see value creation and they want to properly measure and compensate that value creation.
1: They're, they're, They're the Switzerland of revenue generation.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Whereas I don't believe that sales and marketing... They are not Switzerland, you know, maybe they're France and they're Germany, or I don't know. they are America and China. Who knows what the
1: proper geopolitical framing is, yeah. yes, you know, there's a few of them at the moment you can choose from
2: right, but um but I just think, yeah, I mean, you know finance doesn't really care, um and I think finance is willing to be objective about it, and they're willing to think about, as I talked about, current cash flows and future cash flows, you know, so I think there's there's that, and in general, I just feel. You know, as I said, you know, finances determine they determine the budgets and they determine not just the kind of collective budgets, they determine your individual compensation. And so they just make sense as a place to go, as a neutral arbiter, to try to partner. And then if you could partner with them, I believe that they can get sales to understand something that maybe sales wouldn't understand otherwise.
1: Well, Prue, I'm not sure where you sit on this, but you are starting to see some uh, on the ground evidence by B2B brands of all these themes we're talking about, including the sales and marketing tension. Um, it seems like there's, you know, some B2B brands are trying to apply the science, if you like, of what we're talking about here. Um, what are you seeing? Who? What sort of work are you seeing that sort of demonstrates there are some making an effort? And welcome, Prue.
0: Yeah, thank you, Paul. Yeah, I definitely think you know, for the marketers that we're, we're talking to um, are really interested in these concepts and really looking to try and bridge, I think, some of that discussion with with sales and and some of that education on on what that looks like. I think, you know, financial services has been an interesting category because for a long time um have really focused on brand and the B2B B2C side of things and assuming that you know, by building a brand in B2C, that is actually going to do the job that they need to do in B2B. And I think right. B2, the B2B side of the business has been, you know, very much, I like Jenny's term of assuming they're already in the room, uh, talking, you know, very much about product and, and lead focus. but. I think we've seen a little bit of a shift in that. I think the recent campaign uh, by Westpac, which was the small business help hub, was really interesting. It was a you know, brand campaign, very focused on business, looking at sort of real-life customers starting to tell their stories about you know, how they've been impacted through the pandemic and, and how they have actually you know, looking to sort of go forward from that. And I think it's very much specific to, to B2B and not assuming that just because Westpac is a very well-known brand with consumers that that is going to have the same impact within um, a B2B buying decision.
1: Um, just before before you go to the next, it's a really good example. Um, Jenny and John, is that a common uh, sort of mistake that B2B marketers make relying on the, the the umbrella branding that might be going to the broader market uh, to, to both of you?
3: Yeah, so this leads into the discussion on uh, what we call category entry points, which are they're pre-brand. They're the thoughts people have when they are coming into becoming a category buyer. And I don't mean for the first time, I'm talking about just you know things people buy, but they don't buy all the time. No one buys everything all the time, even milk. You go in and out of being a category buyer.
1: I was this morning actually, Jenny.
3: You were a category buyer for milk.
1: Yeah. Classic example. There was none in the fridge. It's a very good example.
3: <laughs> I wasn't. So there we go. But I will be yeah. probably tomorrow. <laughs> yes. When it comes to category entry points, what we're talking what we want to know is that to what extent is there overlapping category entry points between B to B and B to C, and to what extent are they separate? And are the same ones. More valuable for the brand to build. And that's so that's an empirical question that you can answer. Um the assumption if you think your b two c advertising is doing your b two b work, you're assuming two things. So yes, you've got the same brand, but that's only one ingredient in building up memories. The other is what memories are you building? right? The assumption is that it's not so the brand might be the same. But the other part of it, the messaging, the the residual that's left afterwards, that the associations you build, are they the same and are they equally relevant? Or is there a different conversation you have to have to get into the minds of your B2B buyers versus your B2C buyers? And that's probably going to vary depending on the spectrum. Now, at the SME level, there might be quite a bit of overlap. But as you start to get up to the um, bigger businesses, high value segments, there might be some different conversations that need to happen. So, so that's where the focusing just on B2C rather than uh, marketing. Yes, the brand is good, but it's the messaging that I would question the relevance sometimes.
1: That's pretty much what you were saying, right? And so that's what you're seeing in the work from from Westpac. What else, uh, in, in terms of work, you're seeing uh, along this along these lines from other brands?
0: Yeah, I think um, probably the other um, brand which is really exciting me at the moment is, is DocuSign, and I think there's two two areas there um, that are really interesting. I mean, firstly, for the last twelve to eighteen months all tech brands have been so focused on ABM. It became the buzz of what everyone wanted to do. And I think, you know, what they were focusing on was really, you know, targeting and closing customers who are already in market or part of, that sales journey already, and and that's why this 955 concept um, that we've been talking about it in market, out of market is really interesting because it starts to actually look at the, if you're just doing ABM, you're pretty much only talking to to that five percent that are that are in market.
1: For those that don't know, ABM is an acronym for
0: account-based marketing.
1: Good, yep. It's
0: a it's a subject that you know John often talks about, like you know hyper targeting, another form of hyper targeting, really focusing on a very defined. Audience yeah. can be very effective when you know you are looking to to close customers or specific your know, personas of customers but it is actually not talking to you know a broader audience that are potentially not in market at the moment
1: And this is where DocuSign I guess is where DocuSign kicks in right
0: Yeah there's two things about the DocuSign so the next time DocuSign campaign um, love that they've localised. Um, we're not often seeing big tech brands actually localising con- um, some of their campaigns in market. And I think the way that they've used Australian business influencers like Jules Lung, really speaking about the times they went wrong with paper contact, I think has a greater connection um, to the audience. But it's very much focused on a, on a brand campaign and, and talking to a broader Audience, not just those who are you know focused on the product or, or in market at the moment.
1: Just on that, it's a very funny campaign. Jules is a great example where it's almost like he was in a frequent flyer. Just for those that don't know, to put flesh on the bones of this, DocuSign did a campaign and included um, a social media um, um, sort of advisor and company, uh, Jules Lund, who who basically broadcast. thought he was faxing or scanning a contract that he had with I think nine or a media company and he ended up sending it to every other frequent flyer lounge in the country rather than actually scanning it for himself very funny stories around that it's sort of and it's that's where the relevance kicks in I guess you're talking about
0: yes very situational love that it uses you know humor as well which is not something we often see in b2b but very relatable I think also Without going into too much of the results, we definitely saw you know that campaign um, on our on our own, our own network. Members who've been exposed to to the brand campaign were you know significantly had significant increases in engagement um, when they were actually um, exposed to lower funnel campaigns as well.
1: Right, and that's
0: something that they've looked at over. A, a long period of time, um, you're know, focusing on, on, on being able to concurrently run their, their brand and lower funnel
1: activity. And it does go to, again, this this um, balance between uh, product and functional messaging versus storytelling and telling in a different way, but telling functional functional benefits, but in a different way. That's sort of an example where DocuSign could have gone, you can upload, you can scan your stuff really easy, but no, they actually told a story around it. That's sort of an emerging theme too, isn't it?
0: Definitely storytelling. Um, it's just not something I think we just get. So we think that um, B2B needs to be very functional, um, not really capturing some of that emotional. Um, and I think that the brands who are capturing that emotional side of things are doing really you know, well. You know, a great example from HP, the HP Wolf campaign, um, which has kicked off last year and continuing to. To run and it focuses on the rebrand of of the HP security solution. So, focusing on the impact of cybersecurity at work and home as that work and life um, blurred during the pandemic and they're no longer two different things and what the impact of cybersecurity was that they did it in a really humanized storytelling, understanding how that sort of how life has changed and that blurred work and, and home has changed. They, I really like they used Christian Slater. Um, it brought a bit of star power to B2B, which we don't often you know, see all the time. But it really you know, it really had a great storytelling element that I think really resonated, very situational in what a lot of us were going through with dealing with you know, family and work all at home together during the pandemic.
1: So, John, Proust talked given a, you know two or three good examples there of what brands are trying to do in this new – B2B brands are trying to do in, in a new world. Um, what are you seeing in your global travels that stand out? Is there any other examples um, of, of the work, uh, the executional side of things that you think is landing?
2: Well, we talked about Salesforce, and I think Salesforce does a great job. We talk about them all the time, but they really do a good job with a whole bunch of different things. I think they've got – you know obviously like i think that there's a framework that that jenny talks about which is that mental availability in some ways like the mathematical equation would be reach and messaging and branding they get a lot of reach with their campaigns i think the messaging is quite good they are really using a lot around kind of category entry points to link to specific situations and specific industries. And then the branding is exceptional because they have this character, Mm. Astro, Mm. who wears a t-shirt with a cloud and could not be mistaken for any other brand. So it is unmistakably Salesforce. And so they do a very good job on this front. Another campaign I've seen recently comes from a company called Workday. And they've got a whole bunch of really good campaigns around kind of you know, the one I've seen that I like a lot is a gentleman on a a Zoom call and he's screaming workday, workday, workday. And it's funny because we've all been in that situation on a Zoom call at work where we can't be heard or we're on mute. So, you know, it's just kind of a situation we're all familiar with. You know, he's also saying workday. And so you're seeing workday visually, you're hearing it verbally, you know, and those are some of the hallmarks also of just very good kind of creative mapped to very good branding. So, you know, those are good, I would call them campaigns from a um, the tech category. And one that I also just really like that I think comes from finance, which is a UK example. I love the um, the Lloyds of London stuff with the black horses. Right, You know, it's a little bit like the work you see for Patek Philippe, you know, where they're saying, hey, buy this watch because you'll be able to hand it down for multiple generations. The horses are often, you know, adult horses with child horses. And as somebody who just had a child, you know, it kind of plays on some of the more emotional ideas that are important to me now as I have a child. Yes. And, and I think there's like just a generally important concept here, which we are stealing from Rory Sutherland, but he talks about kind of logical and psychological. Mm. And a lot of B2B lead generation campaigns are very logical. You know, it moves this fast. It has this many buttons, but I think it's always very important to understand the psychological needs of the potential buyer. And Jenny has a whole bunch in her category entry point of framework around Kind of like how you feel and the motivations for buying, and I think understanding the psychological is core to developing great creative. And so, those are just a couple of examples that I like.
1: Yeah, and quickly to Jenny on this. So, you know, what do you what do you make, Jenny? Uh, are these are these companies getting it broadly right in terms of? For What do you make of conceptually of functional messaging and doing that through storytelling rather than just the hard, rational message? What's your sort of sense on this, according to the science at least?
3: I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate here. And what I worry sometimes is that we tell a life story, but no one remembers what we want them to remember. So that's what we need to think about is advertising is not a destination. It's a vehicle for changing memories. So you have to be very careful about what are the memories I'm I'm bringing to the forefront for people and refreshing or building and and make sure that they're actually in line with things that are going to be useful. So, I I mean, I would give that advice to anybody, but I have seen a couple of B2B campaigns, which I won't name, but... um, I will say I, I looked at them and kind of went, I have no idea what I would take away from that. Now, I've had that from some B2C campaigns as well. But, you know, given budgets for B2B advertising are typically smaller, you know, you don't want to waste that money. So that's the the, the caveat I put is I'm all for storytelling. I think it's an important part of how we process and learn information. But just remember that you do want to make sure that the brand is there and the message is actually something that has a life outside of the ad in terms of usefulness
1: got so let me put you on the spot let's let's use 3m as an example and 3m as a fire creating producing fire extinguisher foam now 3m could say we are the best which you know most would assume they are at producing a high quality fire extinguisher foam you could give all the technical benefits as to that um, when you're trying to get to you know buyers of those of, of that product Or in the case of uh, 3M where they've gone, instead of saying we are the best and here's why, here's our technical specifications, they've gone, we actually protect the world's best art at the Louvre. And the memory associations and creation with that, do you think that sort of scenario lands? Hotspot.
3: Yeah, possibly. But the problem we have is that how often do people go to the Louvre? Right now, in Australia, not often at all. So my concern would be that that is... In, in trying to tell a story using an exemplar, you lose the everyday relevance to people. Now, there might be a way of making sure that that happens and that can be tested for, but that's where we just have to be careful that in the effort to, grant, to, to grab attention in the story by telling something fabulous and wild, um, we lose the the simpatico you get that John talked about when he talked about the seeing the little horses with the big horses and how that now resonates with him because he has a child, so so that's where we that's that's the line that I think we just have to be very careful. A lot of storytelling does go into things that are, I understand they're doing it for effect and attention, unusual things that you're not likely to encounter. My worry is what you remember is the unusual and not the protection. So, you know, someone seeing the Louvre suddenly remembers, oh, thinks about the Mona Lisa, thinks about the last trip to France, thinks about all of these other things and totally forgets that, oh, it's all about protection. So I'm not advocating necessarily the, you know, let's talk about the specifications because I think that's too brand centered. What I'm trying to encourage people through a category entry point mentality is to think about the buyer and how you fit the brand into their lives. And yes, you can do that with humour, you can do that with a whole range of emotional things. And there's a lot of evidence that there's value in um, engaging emotions when processing advertising, but we also have to remember what's left behind as well. And think about how useful is that and are we getting the right message embedded in people's brains are we changing the right memories
1: there's a thing called time and we're nearly out of it so just before we go i wanted to go to all of you about the next 12 months what do you individually think are the key shifts um we're going to see or should see uh in gaining sort of momentum for b2b marketers um john to you first um next 12 months top focus
2: i mean The thing we're most focused on is bringing category entry points to our our clients. I think Jenny said it right here towards the end. I mean, we have to encourage our clients to think a lot less about the product and a lot less about the brand and a lot more about the customer or the buyer. You know, and I think the better we get at understanding the customer and thinking about the customer journey, things like the 95-5 rule, the better we get at linking to finance, the better we will work with sales, the more success we will have. And ultimately, something I am very passionate about, the more creative well-branded well branded advertising will be able to run, right? The better brands will be able to build. so I want to move us away from you know with the help of Jenny and the rest of the folks at Ehrenberg Bass, away from the very drab and dull lead generation advertising that doesn't frankly really work very much, and I want to move us more towards the stuff that we knows work we know we know works, which is you know, as I said, you know creative and well branded ads that, that that stay in your memory for a long time and include uh, influence future
1: purchases. Jenny, the next 12 months for you, what what should be getting momentum? What should be getting the focus from B2B marketers?
3: Oh, the same thing about for all marketers, really more evidence based decision making, less about how the world we want to be or assume it is, and more about how it actually is. So I just want to see more rigor, more evidence, more data used in the right ways to, you know, so we understand this world better, so we can better. Leverage off knowledge that's already there, but also build knowledge so that we
0: all advance.
1: Prue, um, your final thoughts on the next 12 months in in the APAC region at least?
0: Yeah, I think it's we're definitely starting to see that shift away from just the short-term, you know, lead gen um, activity and I think we're going to start to see, you know, more brands looking at that longer-term, you know, brand and very specific to B2B. I think on the creative side of things, I think the Calm Lion's B2B Line Award is really interesting coming up yeah, it is. later yeah. uh, this year. And I think we definitely have marketers and B2B agencies talking to us more about creative and thinking about you know, what that looks like. Not that we want everything to be awards driven but it's certainly changing, I think, some of the thinking for, for the category, and I think that's going to be really positive.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting one, Prue, because it, it if if Can does nothing else, it will bring together a body of global work that will help B two B markers benchmark uh, what look what good looks like, right? So you've suddenly you've finally got something that will be global and and a, and a great resource. So I think it's a really interesting one, and it's on. It's on a lot of B two B marketers' um, um, minds at the moment too. So good call there. Before we go and say thanks, um, a shout out actually to B two B marketers. Have I think it's really worthwhile looking at the work that that Jenny and and John and crew have done at the B two B Institute on how B two B brands grow. It's a it's a great piece of research and definitely worth. Um, Getting your, getting your brain into. Um, so with that, uh, let's wrap it up. Jenny, John, Prue, thanks. Great conversation. Lots more to happen on this front and just, to, just the beginning, really. So stay safe and we will be back talking more about um, this whole concept. Thanks for joining.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer.